Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security and defense. In this end-of-year episode, we'll be discussing the last year in European and transatlantic politics, defense and security, and we're very pleased to have with us two wonderful women, both long-standing members of Wise Brussels. Rosa Balfour, Director of Carnegie Europe, a great expert on issues of European foreign policy and politics, a member of the WISE Steering Committee and a stalwart of the think tank community. We also have Corinna Horst, Guido Goldman Director of Leadership Programs and Senior Fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Brussels. A former president of WISE Brussels, she's currently a member of the Senior Advisory Board. Thank you so much for joining us, ladies. And let us start from where we always start, which is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Rosa, how did you come to Brussels and how did you end up specialising in politics and foreign policy? Hello, Ilana. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. I think the moment in which I became interested in Europe, as in the European Union, was when I was doing a master's degree in European studies and started to learn about how Europe responded to the end of the Cold War through enlargement and through supporting the democratic transformation of Central Europe. And for the first time, I actually thought of the EU as being rather interesting. Um, until then, I thought it was about you know, agricultural policy and the single market and obscure, complicated institutions. Whereas actually, it's, the enlargement process gave a sense of the historical role of the European integration project in supporting peace and democracy and democratic change. I arrived in Brussels 14 years ago now. It was a job offer, which was a good one, at the European Policy Centre, where I would head the Europe in the World programme. So it was interesting. It was fun. I enjoyed the think tank world because it allowed me to have a good work-life balance. You know, I had one child, when I arrived in Brussels and soon had a second. And it allowed me to juggle the different things that I'd like to do. And then I went through a few uh, think tanks in Brussels before arriving in Carnegie Europe, which uh, seems just a very perfect fit. Great. And Corinna, you've also really led most of your career in think tanks, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I'm actually one of the rare beasts that are around that I have been with the German Marshall Fund now um, for almost 20 years. I'm originally from Germany, so I studied in the UK. Then I went to the United States and uh, what was meant to be one year became 10 years. And so I had been working with the German Marshall Fund already in Washington, D.C. It was sort of my first real job after finishing my PhD in the U.S. And then I asked the German Marshall Fund if I could uh, relocate to Europe to be closer with my family. And so I came over there and sort of helped set up the office, um, the connections, the networks, and then sort of build my career sort of in the European affairs, but always with this very strong transatlantic linkage. And when I came in early 2000, was my first contact with WISE at that time, WISE Brussels. Being a single mom, I sort of saw the stereotypes of, you know, being a mother or being a working mother. And that also coincided with a number of female colleagues in the think tank community realizing, you know, it was usually our male colleagues who were invited to speak, be on panels and be recognized by the media, but not us women, which... Uh, 
then gave me a sort of, you can almost call it a second career. While GMF wasn't using me for my full potential that I could offer, I went off and created the Brussels Binder with a number of women from the think tank community, which was all about making women visible in Brussels. Well, that's very, very interesting. Whoever doesn't know the Brussels Binder is indeed an online tool in which you can find women who are specialists and experts and or just working within lots and lots and lots of fields who can be invited onto panels and lectures and any other place in which for usually men are invited to. I'd also mention that we worked on it together. But more interesting, I think, is also the fact that both of you did PhDs. I too did a PhD. When you started out, did you think you were going to do a PhD? Did you think that that was the part that really interested you and you wanted to be an academic? I did a PhD because I thought at the time that I wanted to be an academic. I did a PhD in history and indeed lectured for three years until I got very bored with it and went to work for the UN. But it is a very big commitment to do. So, Rosa, how was it for you? Where did you do your PhD and why did you do it? So I did my PhD for one reason, because I was insecure. I was already working in a research institute and I felt I needed to learn more. And I felt I needed to learn more because I was underconfident. I wasn't confident enough about myself and I wasn't confident of the fact that others would take me seriously. And, you know, I don't think they did take me seriously because I was rather young. I was in Rome. The scene was dominated by grey-haired men. In fact, I remember very well in 2001, I made a comment. This was around the Lacan Declaration after the Nice Treaty. And everybody agreed the Nice Treaty wasn't going to solve the problem. So one year later, they wrote this declaration, the Lacan Declaration, saying, well, we'll have to do further EU reform because the Nice Treaty is not enough. And indeed, after that came the Constitutional Treaty, which was then didn't pass. But anyway, let's not go into that. But at that time, I was at a seminar with all these white-haired men. And I said, well, I really think that the sort of dualism, intergovernmentalism and federalism has run out of steam and we need to think of alternative ways to integrate. And one of these men actually laughed in my face, which was so humiliating. So I went off and did a PhD. That's why. That's as good a reason as I've ever heard for doing a PhD. And I mean that quite, quite seriously. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work to put in to prove to yourself and to everybody else. But I think it's an excellent reason. It really is. Corinna, why did you decide to do a PhD? I had a very fantastic thesis advisor during my master's degree, and she encouraged me to go for a PhD. And so it was her coaching. It was me not really having a clear idea what I wanted to do after university. Being able to get a fellowship in the United States uh, that allowed to sustain myself while I was being there. It was being able to teach while getting my PhD and, and having that experience. And then it was the comment of another advisor who said, getting a PhD is like a union ticket. You belong to a circle, to a network. So it's sort of a combination of things that got me there. And yes, it's hard work. I also realized very quickly that this wasn't for me. I was missing the interact. You know, I was sitting in Ohio and was a very good environment to do a PhD, but I also felt like the world was passing by me and I was missing out of things. And I knew I wanted to get into a work environment with more hands-on work and also different kinds of networks and stakeholders. And so the one story I do want to share about this is, so I got my PhD, I went to Washington, D.C., started working, and I wouldn't put the PhD on my business card. And 
my brother was furious about this. Sort of, he was like, you know, you 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 worked for all this years on this PhD, so why don't you? And I said, oh, I, you know, I don't need it. I don't need to show it off. And then I came to Brussels, and I found myself often in meetings where everybody thought I was the secretary, and I could bring coffee. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to put my title on my business card, and it immediately changed how people treated me. So that goes back to the union card of, you know, the comment of the one professor. It is a union card. That's very, very true. I mean, I rarely use, you know, my title because I don't think it's meaningful outside of academia, but it is very useful, as you say, when people do not necessarily take you seriously within a group of people. It's amazing how those two little letters before your name makes a huge difference to people. Um, but moving along and possibly using our PhDs, what was the biggest foreign policy event this year for you, Rosa? Good question. I'm not sure there is a single event. There is a, a whole series of events. But I think, I guess, watching how the Biden administration is carrying out its foreign policy is perhaps the most interesting event. So, you know, I mean, my most shocking year was 2016, Brexit and Trump combined. Start of 2021, the UK definitely left the EU and the Biden administration comes in. And this really is, in principle, a moment to reorganise the, the so-called West, right? To, to reorganise those powers that have basically shaped the world um, since the end of the Second World War. So I've been amongst those, you know, arguing Europeans and Americans really need to work together we need to do it differently. We need to bring along other countries. We need to be more inclusive, um, but we need to work together. Whereas, of course, the debate in Europe has been all, all about strategic autonomy, very much on the heels of the experience of the Trump administration. And now we've seen the US withdraw from Afghanistan, the AUKUS pact, which brought together the US, the UK and Australia and knocked France out of a pre-existing contract. And now we're seeing... Russian troops build up on the border of Ukraine, very threatening. And we're looking at how this evolves. I mean, this is, you know, it's happening as we speak. So the jury's out there as to what's coming. But it seems to me that this is a moment in which Europe really needs to take on a lot more responsibility on its own foreign and security policy, because it's dangerous. It needs to do it with the US, but clearly the US is on a an agenda of retreat. It's, it doesn't look like it wants to be the global policeman it was. So I think really the end of complacence is there for Europe. Now, this has been said over and over again. It's, you know, it's a bit of a repetitive discourse in the European front. But I, I really think having observed the evolution of the relationship with the US, I really think we're getting towards a critical juncture. So it would be this collection of events, perhaps, um, that is most important. Corinne, building on what Rosa was talking about, how do you see Europe moving ahead with issues of politics, security and defence? Because it's clear to everyone that we've arrived at a point in which there's change, there's change everywhere. So the idea of just going back to, let's say that NATO does defence and that we are a security union and everybody will play nice and it'll all be okay, isn't working anymore. How do you see that moving ahead in the next year? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I agree with Rosa that, you know, the U.S. election was sort of, you know, it, it set us out to a new path. And I wouldn't say so much that the U.S. is retreating. I mean, you know, world policemen was always contested, but it, it's clearly changing its sort of interest. And sort of Europe is now left with, or, you know, had to react differently to it. It wasn't just about, oh, we go back and hold hands and everything is fine. And we forget about the Trump years, but, uh, you know, realizing that even Democrat-led U.S. government pursues its own interests. And there's a lot happening in Europe, not the least that Germany got a new government. And for the first time, we have a very, very interesting and promising coalition government that has a tremendous opportunity to set new tones in the kind of debates what we have. And so for me, what the fundamental connecting points is, and that is also just, you know, this, our societies have been changing. And we find at the crossroad where governments want to continue business as usual, but have to realize that they're dealing with societies that are very fragmented, very polarized and very diverse. And they haven't been able to adjust how do they deal with these multifaceted need and wishes and perspectives that the societies bring to the table. And so for me, you know, the German government now, the new one where you have the liberals and the greens together with the social democrats, it's an amazing opportunity. But even there in the last days of the coalition negotiations, you saw again sort of oftentimes the Greens and Liberals kind of sort of opposing sides. But if you actually look who voted for them, and they got the most votes, both the Greens and the Liberals, the Liberals even more, young people, entrepreneurial people. And when you asked about this, this sort of community, you, when you did public opinion polls, you know, the subject matters that resonated with them were the same. So the, the sort of younger generations are actually not quite as often as the media often sort of portrays those, those sort of political affiliation. So I'm hoping the new government can sort of stick to this. So that's one point. So there's a next generation. So I, I see sort of a generational change and I find that fascinating. The other thing I, I wanted to say, you know, what I also feel has dominated discussions, both domestic as well as international in some way, it, you know, some people talk about it as sort of diversity, equity and inclusion. Others, you know, point to the polarization of political groups and parties and the lack of ability to actually come to some sort of compromise. We see it very strongly in the United States. So it, it actually brings back sort of almost a human dimension to the politics and, and even foreign policies. It's a huge challenge because there's so many different opinions out there, but almost like, you know, we are required to not only look at institutions and treaties and how we've been doing things for years, but now we're at this crossroad where we kind of need to go back to the sources, to the population, the civil society to ask, well, where should we be going and together and not just the institutions on one side and individuals on the other side. So there's something happening and I see it as quite, uh, it's challenging, but I also see huge potentials. And again, you know, this, uh, my new job is sort of perfect moment because it's like I can work with people who can make that change happen. So I think we can all of us agree this is a period of massive change. Anybody who looks about, you don't have to be a brilliant historian or a political analyst to see that we've arrived at a point of 
whether it's a make and break one or whether it's a just, you know, sort of a change of direction, we'll only know later. Clearly, COVID has played into this in the simple sense that for the past nearly two years now, people have not been behaving the way they behaved before. They didn't have the same liberties as they did before, especially in the West, in terms of just going out or feeling free to do things or travel or communicate, or rather like we're doing now, um, everything moved onto Zoom or onto screens. Change. Change is really, really, really there. How do you feel that the EU is harnessing change? Is it in control of any element of the change, or is it sitting there and watching or even trying to just chase after it in every way? Rosa? Well, I would say... Um, two things. First, I agree with what you've just said, Dilan, and also what, with what Corinna said. I think we've had a period, um, and perhaps, you know, I was talking about the end of the Cold War, the 1990s, and how that interested me into this line of work. I think that was also an era of complacency. And then we moved forward in a very technocratic, top-down way. And then we've had a period of revolt against the technocracy, and it's come to a head with COVID. So now we actually need to take people's opinions, ideas and preferences into account, which until very recently, the technocratic gaze didn't actually see this, right? You just moved on with your trade agreements, you moved on with your institutional reform and didn't really see that actually the people were changing and having different ideas. And so the coronavirus pandemic, because of the massive injection of public finance to support people during the coronavirus pandemic, to support the economies and to prevent, you know, a massive economic recession. This cannot, could not be done simply top down like the 2008 economic crisis, financial crisis was managed. It had to look for a new bargain. And in that bargain, what the EU did was identify what are the big challenges to humanity, and that is climate and the digital revolution, the technological revolution. So systemically, I think the EU has responded very well. Um, it's identified the right key priorities on the long term. Okay, and then you've got all the challenge of implementation, of carrying it forward, the politics, all the stuff that we know. But then if you look at the EU, Europe, dealing with Russia, dealing with Turkey, dealing with China, dealing with instability, it's very unprepared. And so it's a bit of a schizophrenic animal at the moment. It has identified systemic challenges and how to go about them, but it's actually unable to deal with a lot of the very pressing issues, which if they're not addressed, will not enable the EU to move on the systemic challenges. However, I do think there are opportunities. And again, going back a bit to what both of you were saying about the nature of security, you know, things are always framed very much in terms of traditional security, military security, territorial defense, etc. But actually, where the EU is much better is at diplomacy, resilience, confidence building measures, thinking about security holistically. And that's where it, it can put out some interesting experiments, some interesting processes that can be relevant. Now, this is not to say that the whole traditional approach to security is bankrupt. It's not. We know that. People still like guns and missiles, etc. So what the EU can do is invest on where it is. it has more assets, on where it has more experience. And that is, you know, on the things in between. Not so much the hard security, but the diplomacy or the messaging or the institutions and processes and policies 
uh, funding, you know, with money, of course, that's always been one of the EU's assets. So it can do things which address the softer edge. Excellent. Thank you very much. But the question I would put to you, Corona, is this also a generational issue? Have we reached a point in which taking into consideration everything that Rosa said, and actually also taking into consideration the German elections, do you think we will see developments on defence and security or shall we say, more hardcore defence with this government? And will that allow Europe to move ahead to a certain extent on issues of defence and security? Because there is a historical issue, whether we like to talk about it or not, of isn't it better if none of us do defence and security and leave that to the Americans because then we won't go to war with one another? Well, I think it's going to take more than one generation to change NATO. And I don't see this organization necessarily move away from the very structured, institutionalized and hard security approach. Although there are sort of small openings and a next generation of leaders uh, are definitely one opportunity. And Secretary General Stoltenberg's time is up next year. So who knows who will take that over I love what Rosa said about sort of the need for a holistic approach to security. And I I do think there is a need to fundamentally change that conversation because we could see it in Europe as well that, you know, security is not just an external factor, but it's also an internal factor. And I agree with Rosa, there would be a wonderful opportunity for the European Union to have this more holistic approach where you do things around PESCO but then also when it comes to migration and trade relations. So it's sort of all of that. However, I have to admit that this year, because of COVID, I find the European Union in some ways, or even here in Brussels, is sort of, you don't really see them a whole lot. I mean, they're very much siloed in their internal processes. And then we also have commissioners coming from member states that are not particularly pro-Europe, but get a position that, though, makes them do very strange uh, policies. I mean, whether we talk sort of about Polish agricultural commissioner or the Hungarian commissioner who are not really, you know, well regarded in Europe. So, you know, in many ways, I also see the European Union institutions and somewhat absent and everything has been taken over by COVID. You know, we don't have, for example, any substantial big picture trade uh, conversations, discussions going on. There's sort of a trade and tech council, but, you know, you don't hear much about it. So there is no engagement of sort of civil, broader sort of society or civil society in that sense. So, I mean, on the one side, I agree with Rosa on EU has an opportunity and digital transformation and climate are definitely the right, you know, subject matters, but there also other subject matters and I feel it's a bit lacking so I don't blame certain people looking to France and Germany to see they are driving that sort of um, engine and um, I think the verdict is still a little bit out whether how France and Germany are getting along I mean both the new chancellor of Germany as well as the foreign minister, France was sort of their first stopping stone place to visit. But then we have French elections going on next year. So whatever rapprochement one might have between those two governments might be put up to the test again, depending who wins in France. So it's a bit of a long answer to your question, and I might not have addressed all of it, but I'll stop here. I think it is an answer, but it also reflects yet again that apart from the fact that there's no one answer to the situation, we really are in a period of tremendous transition and change. 
that a lot of the things that we could have said at one time, that the problem is that the Europeans don't do hard defense, or the problem is migration, or the problem is trade, or the problem is the transatlantic relation. Currently, we're looking at a situation in which practically everywhere you poke your finger, things are in change. They're not necessarily bad, but they're in transit. There is no certainties. And most of the assumptions that we've deployed for the past 20 or even 30 years just don't apply anymore in one way or another. And I think that one of the issues that you raised, Corona, and I think is really quite strong, is if you want the cohesion within the EU, not least on matters of defence and security, and this great disparity between It's not East and West so much as between two specific countries, for sure, Poland and Hungary and the rest of the union, but also other countries who are saying, well, we joined a union, but now we're members and we can change it all. Do you think that's going to be a big discussion looking ahead in 2022? Karina? I very much hope so, because for me, it has a lot to do with accountability. So if the European Union wants to be a credible global player that stands up for the values based on which we were founded. I mean, whether it's the freedom, the rule of law, democratic structures and prosperity, we can't go around the world preaching about those principles and values if we don't follow them internally. So I very much hope that all of us in the different environments and sectors and the communities we are in, including the leaders we elected, take that challenge seriously and have with people who fundamentally think differently for whatever reason, have these difficult conversations. But I think they need to be addressed um, if we want to be credible. Rosa, do you agree with that? Do you think that this is a very big issue, which actually also influences issues of politics, defence, security? I really do. I actually do think one of the biggest challenges for for Europe, the European Union as a whole, is actually to improve the quality of its democracy. And I say this, we know the story of Hungary and Poland, uh, but I I would say EU-wide for sure, in the sense that precisely because of societal change, precisely because of the rise of complexity, uh, we need to invent much better processes of democratic engagement, of representation and participation. And that is absolutely critical, not just for Europe in itself and for European member states, but actually for Europe's global role. It's about credibility. It's about pursuing a foreign policy which is focused on principles such as human rights, such as women's rights, children's rights and democracy. Uh, It's about projecting and working towards a multilateral order which is inclusive and participative. You have to do the two things at the same time. I'm not one of those who says let's fix our house first and then move out. No, we have to do the two things at the same time. But going back to Hungary and Poland, For me, it's actually rather tragic that it happens in these two countries, which were among the countries in Central Europe. They fought for democracy. They fought to get rid of communism. They fought to get into the European Union. And now their experiment is lending justification to those, especially in the older member states, who say, look, you see, they haven't transitioned enough. The transition from communism wasn't uh, deep enough. So they're moving away from democracy. And look, we shouldn't pursue enlargement as a strategic goal because look at what happened in Poland and Hungary. So it's a terrible, it's a tragic 
defeat of the whole idea of European integration as a means to promote peace and democracy. And it's you know leading towards an absenteeism of the EU in the Balkans, which is also becoming very uh, dangerous. And um, so it's actually really tragic. So we need to think about democracy Europe-wide and not just single out those two countries towards which all the rule of law initiatives need to be developed for sure. Also because, and here I'll end, the way in which the institutions and member states agreed upon the recovery fund, it's innovative, it's new, it breaks the cycle of austerity politics but it requires a triangulation of money, democracy, and redistribution, equality. And that new triangulation has to be the new social contract that binds European states together. Can I come in here on this? Of course, of course, please do. Because while on the one side I agree with uh, Rosa, it's very, very tragic, I also see an opportunity in that because... While I was equally inspired on sort of what happened in the 19s and the sort of opening on the East, I think a number of forces that made this sort of a process that it was just about Central and Eastern Europe joining the EU and then everything would be fine. And so the EU at that time sort of imposing certain structures on it and then Central and Eastern Europeans sort of realizing in the process, oh, you know, not all these structures are being adhered by the older member states. So, you know, there were already sort of fissures or sort of issues. But then it's not everybody of these societies were really benefiting from that. It was sort of, you know, certain people that had sort of got privileges. So not everybody benefited from that joining the EU because in some ways the countries haven't had an opportunity to go through a particular transition process without constantly being bombarded from the outside. You have to do this, you have to do this. and But there needed to be some internal conversations that didn't take place. And I think now there is an opportunity to, for these conversations to take place, which makes the work that some of, whether it's the European Union, but then also organizations like my own, the German Marshall Fund, by strengthening civil societies, there are now groups who kind of are able to speak up and kind of say, hey, you know, we need to have new types of conversations about what a Poland, a Hungary, a Serbia needs to look like. And everybody in that society needs to be, you know, part of that conversations from women, from the youth, from the private sector to religious institutions, to political institutions. Now, I do also admit or agree it has gotten more difficult because you have foreign interferences, whether it's from Russia or China or even the Middle East that's sort of meddling. But it's also an opportunity now for having some domestic or internal conversations in the regions that uh, were not able to take place because the, the West was so dominant. Those are two very, very interesting comments. If I may, I would contribute my own simply to say that I don't think that people appreciate, as somebody who was there at the time, the speed of events at the end of the Cold War and in the 90s, the huge load of work and the attempt to make any kind of coherence out of what we then called enlargement. You had um, a whole group of states who were suddenly in freefall and in a vacuum between 
Russia and what was the European Union. And a decision was making that the most sensible thing to do was to take them in. But this happened through a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of things. So when people now look back and say, oh, but they got it wrong, or oh, this didn't happen, although that happened, whilst I personally worked in the Balkans, um, I feel for the people who were working both in Brussels and in all the member states to try and make it happen. It wasn't perfect, but it's a much better place than we could have been if we hadn't have done it in one way or another. And I completely agree with you, Corina, that this is a generational issue. And there's an opportunity now for a new generation to have that conversation and to move ahead. And I think that they probably will in one way or another. Whether they have the conversation that we would like them to have, I don't know. But I think it is the time in which they can have a conversation. Speaking of which, we're having our conversation, which is moving towards an end. Um, But let's look ahead, if we can, with a slight air of optimism. Rosa, what do you think is the good thing that's going to happen in 2022? Well, I hope that we will be able to resume a little bit of travel, not in the same way we did, and that we'll be able to see people a little bit more than we have done in the past couple of years. You know, the past few months have been a sort of suspension. And so in this period of suspension, you're undecided whether to make plans or whether to wait until the situation is different, because otherwise you have to cancel everything, etc, etc. And it's, it's a bit of a psychological feeling of suspension. It's not just a practical one. So I'm hoping that we can come out of this and start living in person, and no longer virtually on screens, and start touching people again, and doing all those things that we've suspended doing for, um, for it's nearly two years now. So I actually have very modest hopes and very personal ones to be able to live in the world a bit more uh, next year. Well, I think that's a wonderful wish to have and a very optimistic way to look ahead. Corinna, what, what is your optimistic look ahead? No, I agree with Rosa in terms of a bit more travel, not as much as before, but also not the nothing that we had most recently. The same also with people being able to meet and see, because as much as I appreciate what uh, the technical and digital world has brought us in terms of being able to connect virtually, you know, it doesn't replace the personal human interaction, but it doesn't have to be as hectic and full as it was in the past. I also hope that, I mean, there was a lot of um, entrepreneurship that came about during this pandemic times as well, sort of locally, whether it's neighbors helping each other or pop-up stores or new ideas. And I would hope that as we resume a new type of life in the new year, that there is also for more people to step up and be part of that change that I think this transformation that we're all sort of feeling, but even though we don't know where it goes, but, you know, that people feel they have agency and uh, can contribute. I think that's a wonderful way to end, people having agency, being able to contribute, and maybe even just shake hands before we even get to hugs or anything stronger than that. I think that's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Rosa Balfour and Corinna Hurst. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, 
Subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, and I'm really together with uh, Florence Ferrando, our technical supremo. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations and a great 2022.